Mr Meyer's lawyer to revoke the warrant was rejected yesterday. The Department of Justice issued a statement saying many witnesses in the case had either died, were now unable to recall any details or didn't want to cooperate. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Chris Oliver along with Mike Weeks. Brian Curtis is still away on holiday and we'll be back in next week. U.S. stocks enjoyed a healthy bump as investors look beyond concerns over Ukraine to focus on Citigroup's earnings. On the flip side, Russian stocks continue their swoon and the Russian ruble takes a further battering. In our featured segments, we'll talk with uh, we'll, we, we will talk about the storm over high-frequency trading with Paul Schulter of Schulter Research International. We'll also look at the state of the film industry in China ahead of the kickoff to the Beijing International Film Festival. Patrick Freiter, Asia Bureau Chief of Variety, will join us for that discussion. Francis Lund, Chief Executive Officer of GEO Securities, is also going to join us for our regular segment on the markets. In news this morning, President Obama and his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, have spoken on the phone in the last few hours about the tense standoff in eastern Ukraine. White House spokesman Jay Carney said the U.S. was concerned by what he called Russia's provocation, uh, excuse me, Russia's provocative uh, actions, but he praised Ukrainian authorities for exercising restraint. We commend the Ukrainian government in the manner that it has dealt with a a very challenging situation uh, and the manner that it has dealt with a series of provocations, uh, beginning with actions by Russia in Crimea that were viewed by the entire uh, world as illegal and continuing with the provocative actions that we see on the Ukrainian border and within eastern Ukraine by uh, the Russians and those supported by Russia. We continue to point to the fact that the Ukrainian government has been managing a situation that is very difficult and very challenging in a very responsible manner. Earlier, European Union ministers agreed at a meeting in Luxembourg to increase sanctions against Russia by expanding the list of those subject to asset freezes and visa bans. Going into the talks, the British Foreign Secretary, William Hague, said Russia's denial of involvement in eastern Ukraine didn't have a shred of credibility. It has all the appearances of a further gross, deliberate and premeditated violation of the independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. Um, It's also uh, clearly a a very dangerous thing to do Um, and therefore there has to be a clear and united international response. Russia's stock market has fallen sharply because of the escalating tensions in Ukraine. The country's MISEX index fell to its lowest level in two weeks, while the Russian ruble led declines among major currencies, extending this year's slide to 8.5%. Analysts at Bank of America Merrill Lynch said in a research note that the occupation of government buildings in eastern Ukraine by pro-Russian activists sharply increases the risk of an all-out civil war in the country. A member of the European Central Bank's governing council, Ewald Nowotny, warned that further escalation in tensions could have widespread repercussions. A further escalation of the conflict could severely affect the economic situation of the whole region and more above uh, maybe all of Europe, maybe worldwide. What we have seen is, for instance, that the exchange rate uh, of, the, of the euro 
has uh, become lower, which by itself is not a bad thing, but uh, which of course might uh, also shows the economic uh, independences that we have. Asian markets are moving higher this morning after U.S. stocks closed over half a percent up as Citigroup's earnings and strong retail sales gave investors reasons to buy despite growing concerns over Ukraine. At the moment, the Nikkei in Tokyo, 1% higher at 14,051. Australia's ASX 200 is up seven points at 5,361. Citigroup led financial shares higher in the U.S. after the bank reported quarterly earnings that beat expectations, aided by a smaller loss on its troubled assets sets even if it's even as its revenues declined the bank's stock rose nearly four and a half percent to forty seven dollars sixty seven cents stock markets tumbled last week as investors bought companies with stable earnings and dumped internet and biotech shares russ kostrick chief investment strategist for blackrock says people should invest in the biggest companies as interest rates start to gain If we expect an environment as as the year goes on where real interest rates start to rise again, generally the large, the mega cap names, they've been more resilient. You don't get the same multiple compression you get on the smaller, uh, small cap and mid cap names. The Dow rose 146 points to 16,173. The S&P 500 also closed more than four-fifths of a percent higher at 18.30. But gains on the tech-rich Nasdaq composite were more limited. It gained just 0.6% to end at 4,022. We welcome to the program now Francis Lund. Chief Executive Officer of Geosecurities. Good morning, Francis. Hi, good morning, Chris. So since your last appearance on the program, we've had a number of developments, one yeah, of them being the right. through train has finally arrived after yeah. a multi-year wait uh, in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not a one-way train, it's a two-way train this time. <laughs> so it's uh, my, uh, it, it, it came much earlier than we thought because it, it was only last Monday that uh, the exchange announced that the, uh, the, the data between the two exchanges uh, was con- connected. And then on Thursday, the premier Mayor Li Keqiang announced the uh, arrangement. So, but but what what is surprising is that uh, we we are missing the irrational exuberance of 2007. And 2007, we all had a party, we all had a field day, right. and now there's nothing. I, and I'm really disappointed this time. <laughs> so, it, are, are there any fuel in the gas tank to drive things at this point? Or well, well, I think uh, uh, different from 2007 is that. The, in 2007, uh, all the equity markets in the world are in the uh, bull run f- phase and all the economies are really uh, growing rapidly. Like uh, in China, I think the growth rate was something like 13%. But this time, what we have is uh, the Asia market in the five-year bear run and the uh, uh, Shanghai Composite Exchange hardly moved at all for five years. And Hong Kong faced the same problem. Uh, if you look at the share prices of the heavyweights, uh, uh, HSBC and China Mobile, they, ha- they haven't moved at all. Uh, of course, uh, Tencent is the uh, uh, big exception, but in the past two weeks already dropped 20% or more. <laughs> so uh, I, 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 I think the market is poised for a small bull run, not a big bull run like uh, 10,000 points in 10 weeks in 2007. Mm-hmm. We will be lucky to see 25,000 uh, mm-hmm. in summer, but I doubt it. Maybe the optimistic 
projection is 24,000 in summer. So is this a delayed reaction? Could we actually have people become more optimistic towards China in coming weeks, given that there's been all these reforms unveiled recently? Yeah, I think I think so. And well, at least I hope so, because the valuations are very low anyway. And uh, you look at the, the Asia financials, their uh, uh, projected uh, PE ratio is something like six or seven uh, or four or five times. And then the uh, <coughs> the dividend yield is six or seven percent. So they are really very low figures. And actually, A share prices are actually lower than X share prices. But but what we have is really a, a leveling of the price differential between A and X shares uh, for uh, financials, for uh, insurance companies, and uh, for mainland banks, actually, A shares have uh, premium over A shares. So what we, what we see the past two days is the price of the insurance companies coming down rapidly, uh, both uh, China uh, Live and the Pingan Insurance uh, came down about 10%. Uh, luckily for the mainland banks, and there's not really that much price differential, so there's very little adjustment. But I think we will see that. And, and of course, on the other hand, there are some uh, really rubbish companies like uh, uh, Luoyang Glass. Uh, uh, the X-share price is something like uh, trading at 60 or 70% discount to A-share prices. So I think for these shares, uh, there's still uh, more upside to come. I asked a, a guest yesterday in the program whether they would be buying uh, Hong Kong exchanges and clearing, <laughs> given that they're the most uh, well well positioned to yeah. benefit from increased fund flows. What's your view? Yeah, I think so. Even right now at uh, 150, it's not really really overpriced. I think in the uh, medium term, I see the price going up to 180 because. Uh, uh, once the food train started, then there's no stopping it. And I think after Shanghai, then there will be a, a, a similar arrangement with uh, Samjan. And of course, uh, uh, the, the food train agreement will gradually or eventually replace QFII and QDII because uh, you don't have to go through mm-hmm. the composite approval process and you don't have to declare your uh, currency and exchange positions like that. So uh, uh, it's also a prelude for the uh, full convertibility of the RMB. So I think uh, uh, the Hong Kong exchange uh, is the best uh, uh, in the pos- in the best position to benefit from the arrangement. What about some of the stocks that have had real um, beaten, have been beaten up badly in the last few weeks? Kingsoft, Tencent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you were on the show when, when uh, a few yeah. weeks ago when they were still at uh, all time highs. Yeah. Uh, well, now they've come down. Would you be a buyer now? Yeah, I think I, I think so uh, because uh, all the internet stocks uh, face some uh, uh, profit taking over the past two weeks, and for Kingsoft especially, the they they are they are able to maintain their uh, profit growth uh, like last year. They their profit growth at fifty five percent, so that's pretty good, and. Uh, and 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 I think after uh, the uh, uh, traders uh, took the profit, I think uh, investors will come in again for the long run. I think they 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 still have some upside. Just a final question: We're into mid-April at this point. We're yeah. running into May, and then we have a seasonal problem where the stock markets are generally weaker over the summer. Mm-hmm. Would you advise getting out of the stock market now or lowering positions, given that we're almost on the doorstep of May? 
Uh, no, uh, because uh, we we already had that adjustment uh, early in the in the February, and then we we have this adjustment in the past two weeks. So, so I think we, the market has already digested all the profit taking activities, and uh, of course, uh, except for the internet stocks, the valuation for the entire market is quite low for the banks and for for the properties and for the insurers, and the valuation is quite low. So there's really not that much downside. Uh, I don't see the index going down to the 20,000 level now. All right. Well, thank you very much, Francis. That's uh, Francis Lung, Chief Executive Officer of Geo Securities. Next on the program, we're joined by Paul Schulte. He's the Chairman and Chief Executive of Schulte Research International. Uh, The story of high-frequency traders gaming the system for their own advantage has has gone global thanks to Michael Lewis's new book called Flash Boys. It's been alleged that some of these traders, along with investment banks, benefited by front-running the market in a form of insider trading. If the, alleg- if the allegations of wrongdoing are true, we should expect some big repercussions. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. <clears throat> so you've been, you've been following this story. I've seen in a, in a note that you put out that you described Michael Lewis's book as the biggest financial story of the year. That's, that's pretty astonishing. Can you tell me why? Well, this affects uh, uh, this affects uh, some of the largest funds in the world. It affects the uh, exchanges. It affects uh, retail investors. It affects all the players in the market, and it and it goes into the halls of Washington D.C. and into you know Wall Street. So this is you know important. I'll give you some examples. You know, in the last week, we've seen the FBI, the SEC, and uh, you know Attorney General Holder launch investigations into. Uh, this um, this activity, and on Friday afternoon we saw an, a, a really important uh, development where uh, three brokers in Chicago have filed a class action suit against the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for alleged uh, insider trading. So this is the first time we've seen a class action suit against one of the exchanges and one of the larger exchanges in the country. So I think we have uh, this is the very early sta- early days of the investigation. And essentially what happened in Chicago was that these uh, firms are claiming that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange sold uh, insider information to the high-frequency trading firms. This is the allegation in the uh, document. And that these uh, high-frequency trading firms had early information that was private and non-public and therefore were able to trade on it. And that, you know, in the um, documentation of the class action suit is a claim of insider trading against an exchange. This has never happened before. So where were regulators during this entire process? Were they just sleep at the switch or, or why weren't they more Oh, busy? gosh. You know, where were the regulators during the mini bonds in Hong Kong? Where were the regulators during the CDO stuff in, you know, um, 2008? Where were the regulators, you know, in, in the um, zero, you know, zero down, you know, mortgage debacle in 2005, you know? Where are the regulators for the last 10 years, right? I mean, this is a question that uh, a lot of people are asking right now, um, and I don't know what the answer is except to say that all too often the regulators can be, you know, in, in too closely allied with their customer, you know? And I, I see that this is not just what we call high-frequency traders, but there's an issue here involving investment banks uh, that sold access to their so-called dark pools to the high-frequency traders. Uh, and they earn a profit from doing so. We don't know how much money they earn from selling that access, but th- this, I 
believe you pointed out is also a factor in what's going to in the fallout in coming weeks. Well, that's right. That's one of the big allegations in the book as well is that the investment banks, you know, created these dark pools seven or eight years ago, precisely to protect you know large institutions like whatever BlackRock, Fidelity, Capital, and, and and larger institutions in order to protect them when they were making large trades to maintain confidentiality and to protect front running. <laughs> so the dark pools were were designed precisely to prevent front-running and insider trading. And it turns out that these banks were tr- were selling access uh, to high-frequency trading firms into these dark pools. Uh, again, that's one of the allegations in the book. Uh, this is, you know, um, pretty disturbing stuff. So what will come out of the wash on this is that there will be very distinct winners and losers. Who are they? Well, I think right now, you know, I, I, I just again, this is all so new. I, I think I think one of the very important uh, implications here, which is critically important, I think that the biggest uh, effect in the market on this sort of uh, high frequency trading activity are momentum stocks, precisely the kind of momentum stocks we see in Nasdaq and the biotech index. So I'm I'm going to make a claim here that I think that the um, sudden you know unwinding of Nasdaq has a lot to do with the way in which high frequency trading firms are sort of scurrying under the refrigerator mm-hmm. as the lights are being turned on. So that's one you know very important effect we're seeing right now. The the the, the kinds of stocks that are going to be most uh, impacted by this kind of um, behavior are going to be the momentum stocks, and th- there was no better momentum stocks in the world than Nasdaq. Uh, nothing has happened in the, the NAS, in, in, in the tech market to cause this, and uh, we don't see any, any sort of weird behavior in currencies. We don't see weird behavior in bonds. We don't see weird behavior in corporate credit spreads. Nothing else can explain what's going on here in terms of this, you know, sort of violent sell-off in the S and P, the Dow, and also a, a much more violent sell-off in Nasdaq, except this development with high frequency trading firms because the timing is you know too you know it's too close to be um you know a coincidence turning to the local asian region here we have news of the through train are you surprised that there's been such a lackluster response to that well, I think that this was a quid pro quo. Uh, I think that, um, you know, once Hong Kong listed the 13 banks in Hong Kong, I think there was a quid pro quo where, you know, uh, China said, thank you so very much for helping us, you know, complete the foundation of the five-year plan, which was to recapitalize all the banks. And as a reward, we're going to accelerate the through train. I think it's, you know, I think it's probably fair. Um, but the amount we're talking about is, you know, in terms of the, uh, the, the mainland Chinese allocation to Hong Kong is approximately three and a half days of turnover. So I think people are sort of wishy-washy on the absolute dollar amount is a very tiny amount in terms of what was announced uh, this week. Yeah, it could be a pilot amount uh, initially to be yep. ramped up later. But given that uh, the news is out, what, would, what are your best trading ideas? Um, right now, I think uh, I would be focusing more on CIDIC securities than Hong Kong Exchange. You know, Hong Kong Exchange has moved up quite a bit, and it is one of the most expensive exchanges in the world. So I, I would rather, you know, look at CIDIC securities uh, being, you know, um, a, a medium-priced, you know, securities operation rather than Hong Kong Exchange, which is, you know, one of the most expensive, you know, exchanges in the world in terms of, you know, valuation. I know from our previous conversations, you've been especially bullish about Japan, but unfortunately, it's been a really bad week for Japan the last uh, week or two. Uh, the yen is higher against almost all major currencies. 
and the Nikkei average has taken kind of a battering. It's down about more than 12% so far this year. That's right, yeah. So how, has that rocked your worldview when it comes to Japan? Yeah, it's just it's very disappointing. Um, I think there are a lot of investors I've talked to in the last couple of weeks who just feel like uh, you know there was an awful lot of promises by the federal government in Tokyo for reforms and for reform efforts and uh, further action by the Bank of Japan. And unfortunately, um, very little of this has come through in the last um, several months. And so, you know, this is another example where people were given an awful lot of, of promises and uh, talk on on reform efforts and things that absolutely positively, you know, were going to happen that didn't end up happening. So this is a disappointment. And I would say it's, you know, a lot to do with basically policy failure. You know, it, it, it's uh, – you know, it's something that, that I was excited about. A lot of people were excited about it. It just hasn't happened. It didn't come through. And is there anything that could happen in the next month or two that could change your mind? Um, <clears throat> I think that a lot of investors will say that if they can come through on even a couple of things, right, a couple of issues in terms of agriculture, uh, some agriculture reform, some reform on rice, uh, some reform on – um, on on cattle, you know, it's even some of these smaller reforms, if they can have a couple of victories, you know, you, you can start to revive sentiment again. But, you know, that remains to be seen. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program this morning, Paul. That's Paul Schulte, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of Schulte Research International. China recently approved a second pipeline for the import of foreign movies. The move is a potentially huge deal for international film studios, which have so far faced tight restrictions on the number of films that they can distribute to mainland audiences. Although the distribution process will remain complex, the push will help open up China's $3.5 billion US dollar box office turnover. Well, we welcome Patrick Freighter, Asia Bureau Chief of Variety, to, to discuss this. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So how big a deal is this second film distribution pipeline? It's potentially a very big deal, but I should just correct you. The, the licence hasn't yet been issued. We're expecting it to happen any, any week or any month now. Um, let me take you back on, on a quick history lesson. Um, the access to the Chinese theatrical movie market has been a diplomatic sticking point between the US and China for over a decade. Um, the US took China to the WTO to sort this out. It won its case and it won it again on appeal, um, but it, nothing seemed to happen for a while. Uh, in 2012, the two vice presidents, uh, then vice presidents Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, personally intervened and uh, expanded the revenue-sharing quota. That's the number of films that can be imported under the most favourable terms into China. Uh, but the US did not succeed in getting China to break China Film Group's monopoly on distributing those films in, in the country. Now it seems that's about to change. So we said uh, in the intro this is going to remain a, a complex issue to sort out. How complex is it going to be and, and, what, and when are we going to see this second distributor then? Well, we're looking at a company called the China National Culture and Art Corporation. That's a large state-owned enterprise which is involved in uh, releasing and, and, and bringing into the country touring theatre groups, uh, music acts and so on. And, and that's a, a, a very large company. It's 20 years old, but it belongs to a different ministry uh, to the, the current uh, setup in China. Um, CNCAC has been preparing this for several months, and it's got a Hong Kong-based partner, which is a listed company here called China Rails Media. 
They say that they will be splitting the import quota and competing directly against China Film Group for those Hollywood titles. Currently, there's only around 30 Hollywood films a year getting into China. So how much could that change, do you think? Well, in the short term, we're not clear that the quota is going to change at all. Um, it may change in, in the medium term, uh, but it may not be directly to the benefit of Hollywood. Uh, it may ha- help some of the independent and other foreign language films, if that happens at all. But this is not specifically about the size of the quota. It's actually about having some competition in the market. And that's a, a liberalisation model which has obviously happened in many other industries in China, but has not really happened uh, yet in, in, in the film industry. And I presume the companies that control, as you say, China Film Group Corp, that they would like to see more films in any way because that would expand the box office in China, you would think? Well, I'm sure China Film Group would like to see the number of films increase over time, um, but it must be a little bit unhappy that its monopoly on distribution of those films is is, is about to be broken. Is this going to give... opportunities for other companies as well? Well, I think in the long term it must do Um, but I think the the process of deregulating the the Chinese movie industry uh, is a very sensitive one. It's film, culture, entertainment and propaganda are always closely tied and it's taken uh, 13 years since the beginning of the liberalisation process uh, for this particular uh, move to happen. And many Hollywood films have had to be tailored specifically for the China market. I guess that's not going to change. I I don't think the, the, the censorship regime is going to change overnight either. Um, so no, I don't think that's the case. But we are seeing lots of activity these days um, in, 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 in China and between China and, and Hollywood. I mean, overnight uh, we've learned that there's yet another deal gone through. This time China Film Group has announced that it's going to be backing two uh, Hollywood movies. They're not Chinese movies in any way, uh, being produced by Legendary Pictures. That's the company that made The Dark Knight. And there have been a succession of these uh, uh, deals in the last uh, month, a really quite extraordinary number of them. OK, well, thanks for that, Patrick. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Patrick Freight of the Asia Bureau Chief of Variety. Briefly in markets this morning, we're trending slightly higher around the region. Uh, The Nikkei is up 116 points at 14,026. Australia is trending slightly higher, up 29 points at 5,382. And Seoul is up slightly as well, up uh, four-tenths of a percent. Uh, In currencies, the dollar is at 101.86 yen. And against the euro, it's at 1.38 U.S. dollars. And the fixing of the renminbi is 6.1531. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has rejected American accusations of Russian interference in eastern Ukraine. The Kremlin said Mr. Putin told President Obama during a telephone conversation that such allegations were unfounded. The White House said Mr. Obama made it clear to Mr. Putin that the U.S. wanted a diplomatic solution to the conflict in Ukraine, but that Russia's actions were not conducive to that. From Washington, here's the BBC's David Willis. In response to Moscow's concerns about the fate of Russian speakers in Ukraine, a senior administration official said the interim Ukrainian government had attempted to address such concerns and that it was ultimately for Ukrainians to decide their future. Russia said Mr Putin blamed the Ukrainian government for pro-Russian protests in the southeast of the country, saying they stemmed from the interim administration's inability to take into account the interests of the Russian-speaking population 
situation there. President Putin also called on his American counterpart to use his influence to prevent the Ukrainian government from using force against the demonstrators. The Washington Post and the U.S. version of Britain's Guardian newspaper have won the coveted Pulitzer Prize for journalism for their reporting on the massive U.S. surveillance program revealed by the fugitive intelligence analyst Edward Snowden. Martin Gelman, who was head of the Washington Post's team of reporters, said it was one of the most difficult stories he'd ever covered. It was just immensely challenging on every level I can think of, journalistically, to authenticate and verify the documents to decide in terms of public interest where to draw the line between legitimate security secrets and things the public needed to know in order to make its own decisions. Um, There were legal risks on both sides of the Atlantic. Edward Snowden said the journalists involved in the story were brave reporters who'd faced extraordinary intimidation. The head of a U.S. court-martial has upheld a 35-year prison sentence against the soldier Chelsea Manning, formerly known as Bradley Manning, for leaking secret U.S. documents to the WikiLeaks website. The BBC's Regina Vijanathan reports. Chelsea Manning, a former intelligence analyst for the